HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. Incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did a student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome award-winning cookbook author and Russian scholar, Dara Goldstein. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Dara about Russian traditions in the Arctic Circle, her newest cookbook, Beyond the North Wind, and we'll hear Dara's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Got your tickets yet for this year's Santa Barbara Culinary Experience? March 13 to 15, 2020. They're selling fast, so make sure to check it all out on sbce.events. Three-plus days of unique only-in-Santa-Barbara events, including cooking demonstrations, wine tastings, culinary talks, workshops and classes, farm tours, guided farmer's market visits, as well as special meals from top chefs like Mary Sue Milligan and Susan Feniger, Ludo Lefebvre, and Chris Bianco, and dinners at Santa Barbara's hottest dining spots like The Lark and BBG. You'll even have the chance to attend a live Inside Julia's Kitchen taping. Special hotel rates are on offer until mid-February. Don't miss it, as I'd love to see you there. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Going deep. Becoming a cultural disciple and ambassador. Being a great communicator. Drawing people in to try, explore, and become passionate about the food and culture. Demystifying the cooking. These are all things Julia did for France and with French cooking. It was her time in France that launched Julia on her life's calling and path to success. And just as Julia did for France, Dara Goldstein has done with and for Russia. Formally, Dara is the Wilcox B. and Harriet M. Adsit Professor of Russian Emerita at Williams College and well-known as the founding editor of the influential Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture which was named the 2012 Publication of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. Widely published as a writer on literature, culture, art, and cuisine, organizer of many exhibitions, she more recently was the editor-in-chief of the James Beard-nominated Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. She's authored five cookbooks, including stalwarts like A Taste of Russia and The Georgian Feast, 
as well as the most recent James Beard and IACP-nominated Fire and Ice about classic Nordic cooking. Our connections to Dara are many. She served as one of the inaugural jurors for the Julia Child Award, transitioning to the Foundation's advisory board because we refused to lose her wise counsel. She also serves on the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History's Kitchen Cabinet, an advisory group focused on all things food and drink in America's past, present, and future, in which the Foundation also participates. She joins us today, fittingly in the depths of winter, to talk about her latest book, Beyond the North Wind, the food culture of the Russian Arctic Circle, and her deep appreciation for Russian culture. Welcome to the podcast, Dara. I'm so glad to be here, Todd. Well, we're excited to talk about Russia and the Arctic, continuing a sort of theme. We've already done Alaska this season, so I've definitely got ice on the brain, I think. Um, so why don't we start with how did your love affair with Russia and Russian culture start, and, and when did it turn to food? I had been curious about Russian culture because my mother's parents were Russian Jewish emigres, and they never talked much about Russia. It was the old country, and things were bad for them there. They were escaping, basically. And so I had a curiosity about it. And when I started college, I decided to study Russian. And I started reading Russian poetry. And I was absolutely enthralled. And then I went to graduate school. And I decided that what I really wanted to write my dissertation on was food in Russian literature. Because it seemed to me that all of the characters were represented through what they ate or failed to eat. And that it was a really immediate way to not only understand characterizations in literature, but also a culture. But I was told by my very staid professors at Stanford that that was not a serious topic. And I ended up writing on a Russian modernist poet, Nikolai Zabolotsky. I'm not sorry that I did, but I couldn't let the food go. And basically, the dissertation turned into my first cookbook, which I published in 1983, called A Taste of Russia. Well, and I want to, we've just recently covered that topic about, you know, is food history a serious subject? And do, do you think if you, this is a little bit of an aside, but do you think if you went back to maybe not the same professor, but if you were a student now at Stanford and you proposed this, it would be, proposed what your original idea was, would be met with resistance? I don't think so. I think that food studies has become much more established than it was so long ago. Um, I would probably have to make my argument somewhat more sophisticated than it was when I first presented it. But I think um, many students now are using topics that touch on food to explore whatever discipline they're in. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it would be possible. So given that sort of starting point and connection between, and obviously you've spent kind of, well, not kind of, you've spent a career being a, a a Russian academic, fair to say, on things related to food and things not related to food, right? Yes. So what made you decide at this point in your career that you needed to journey, uh, go on a journey to find what I think you say in the book is the authentic past of Russian food? And I was curious why you felt you were missing (laughs) it, and and how did that lead you to the Arctic? It's a good question, Todd. Um, I had written... Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking, which was my previous cookbook with 10-speed press. And my original proposal for that book was actually looking at the far north. I wanted to start in the far east of Russia, in Siberia, and travel all the way to the west through Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, down into Greenland, the Faroe Islands, and stop in Iceland, and really explore how people in the north survive in such a harsh climate, but also with very delicious food. And the publisher said, wow, what a great idea, but, you know, Nordic is very hot. I don't think we want Russia in there. (laughs) So why don't you just write a Nordic cookbook? So that's what I did, but I couldn't stop thinking about Russia because to me there are so many similarities as well as differences. And after that book came out, my wonderful editor said to me, I'd like you to write a Russian cookbook. 
And I was a little taken aback. I said, well, I've already been there. I've done that. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I realized that my first book had very much been a book of its times. It was still the Cold War. The Soviet Union existed. I was looking at Soviet foodways, but also looking rather nostalgically back at the 19th century, all of the grand dishes of the czars that were very much like fancy French food. And what I wanted to express was the way the Russians had been eating for a millennium, actually a little bit more, two millennia, and uh, convey that. And it's the way that we tend to want to eat in the States now, whole grains, fermented foods, very simple, natural ingredients that we get from the land. And I realized that there was another story to tell. I see. Yes. And I'm, I'm still I've caught on that original pitch that you had of that that could have taken you like two decades to do all that research and travel and put that together. So while I can see why you were interested, that might have been a wise decision to narrow it down into stages. Yes. So I really it's 40 years, if not 50, of thinking about Russia going back uh, many times to the Soviet Union and then to Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed. Interestingly, when uh, the U.S. and the EU, Canada, Australia placed sanctions on Russia after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, mm-hmm. uh, A lot of terrible things happened, but one good thing that came out of that is that it jump-started an artisanal movement in food in Russia because suddenly all these products that had been available from the West that were being imported were banned. And so the Russians turned to things like cheesemaking, which had never been a part of their tradition. They'd always made beautiful fresh cheeses but never aged ones. And they started looking to their own land, their own products. And it's been pretty exciting to see the results. So put us on the map of where you decided to concentrate on, because obviously Russia is a really large country, and I I don't know how good people's geography are, but actually when you talk about the capital cities, they're really close together, and they're representing a tiny, you know, sort of percentage. So so give us a sort of... um, Oral visual as much as I can. Okay, so um, you can probably picture St. Petersburg, which used to be Leningrad, and it's on the shores of the Baltic Sea, pretty much south of Helsinki, Finland. And if you travel east from there, you get to Moscow, which is in the European heartland of Russia. Russia has a huge landmass, and it straddles two continents. Um, We're talking about Europe. Um, beyond the Ural Mountains, which are further to the east, then you enter into the Asian continent. Siberia is the long stretch um, through the steppes and the tundra that stretches all the way to the far east, which is on the Pacific Ocean. Where I was looking was an area uh, to the far northwest, which borders on Norway, and it is the Kola Peninsula. And the reason I I decided to look at that area for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, much of Russia was overrun by the Mongols um, in the 12th century, and uh, there were a lot of influences that came in from the east. In the 18th century, in the heartland of Russia, where the wealthy people were congregated, they started bringing in French chefs. This was after the influence of Peter the Great, who uh, westernized Russia. I wanted to go to a place that hadn't had those overt outside influences. And I decided that that part of the world would be where I would find this more elemental Russian cuisine that hadn't been transformed so much over the centuries. And is is that because that part of the world is more, or that part of Russia is more isolated, or it just wasn't ever wealthy enough to sort of assume those traditions? It's a little bit of both. And I have to say that there was another impulse 
there. I had read about uh, the ancient Greek utopia of Hyperborea, which means beyond the north wind. That's where the title of my book comes from. Mm-hmm. And Pliny writes about it, Herodotus writes about it, this mythical land in the far, far north where the sun always shines and the people are very tall and, bo- and blonde and beautiful. And there's happiness, and Apollo used to go there to winter because it was so wonderful. And the Russians, the early Russians, had this incredible cult of the sun. And there are all these labyrinths in that part of the world in the shape of the sun. And you have the Russian pancakes called blini that are baked just as the uh, spring equinox happens, again, to welcome the return of the sun. And some uh, Soviet scholars were tracing the paths of uh, the geographers, the ancient Greek geographers, and decided that the Kola Peninsula was where Hyperborea was. So I thought I would go there and see for myself. And? And I feel like I found it. (laughs) I mean, it's not, the sun does not shine all the time. There is the midnight sun. You have it for um, many months of the year, but then you have total darkness in winter. Um, It has not been so touched by outside influences, though, and especially because in the 16th century, a lot of Russians from the area called Muscovy, which is around Moscow, fled north. Uh, because of the depredations of Ivan the Terrible. And they brought with them their their cooking, their culinary methods that stayed intact from medieval times. So you still find all of these very old Russian dishes I'd read about in manuscripts that people are still making. So I did feel as though I had found something quite elemental and deeply Russian. Yeah. So on that note, for those who've been lucky enough to to travel to Moscow or St. Petersburg or even Siberia or have friends that immigrated from there who've shared food, can you kind of compare and contrast what is similar and what is very different or unique to the Kola Peninsula? Well, what's similar is that um, the Russians, one of the glories of the Russian kitchen is pies. So there are an extraordinary number of different kinds of pies, both sweet and also savory, especially savory, I would say. So in the far north, you will get a fish pie that is bursting with fish with only a little bit of dough encasing it because uh, wheat uh, didn't really grow there then in older times. So the dough was usually rye. But even now, the tradition is to have a little bit of crust and a lot of fish. When you get down into the Russian heartland, uh, the fish was more expensive and it had to be transported further. And so you have a lot of rich dough with a lot less fish. So that's one thing. It's the same food, but the balance shifts a little bit. Uh, Both places, uh, both parts of Russia, uh, every Russian loves all kinds of pickles and fermented foods. And in the north, you would tend to have uh, root vegetables like turnips. Uh, Beets are often fermented. Further south, you more often would encounter tomatoes. Um, in addition to cucumbers and all the typical things that we in the West also ferment. Um, They have a tree that grows in Siberia and in the north that's called the bird cherry, and it's prunus padus. It's a kind of, of cherry that has these little berries that are dried and then ground and turned into a flower, and I've been desperately trying to get someone in the States to carry it because it's almost like chocolate with an almond flavor, no gluten, and it bakes up into the most gorgeous tort. And it's from a, a berry that is different than the cherry berry. itself? from, Or it's a cherry tree that doesn't make actual cherry fruit? No, it's a type of cherry called bird cherry. Wow. And it has lots of seeds in it, um, and it's a small... It's not a big, juicy cherry. Fascinating. 
So, so would you say the differences are more nuanced, and that that it does it just has, the, like you said, a different balance? But or you're saying that it it's kind of there's a similar sensibility to the food overall, but with with a variety of of added or different ingredients. I'd say that the basic sensibility is shared, but there's. Uh, there are many fewer ingredients to be accessed in the far north. I mean, today it's less of a question than it was in the past. But um, they tend to rely on hearty grains, whole grains, so barley porridges. They use oat in re- oats in really wonderful ways. And oats were sort of a revelation to me because I think of them as, you know, oatmeal for breakfast or oatmeal cookies. Uh, or maybe some oatmeal bread. But there, uh, they take the oats and they soak them and then they steam them and then they dry them and then they pound them. It's very labor-intensive and they get this very fine flour called talaknoa that they sprinkle on things. Like if you sprinkle them on blini, on those pancakes, it gives a kind of crunchy, very nutty topping that's just beautiful. And they also make a a kind of uh, pudding with that that they mix with sour cream. So it's very basic foods that they put together. Um, There's a lot of honey there. And so honey is the traditional sweetener. Mm. That's what you were just describing sounds a little bit like the way semolina is used in Italy. Mm -hmm. It's like they're, and what's it called in Russian? It, it comes from the verb meaning to pound. So uh, the oats aren't ground. They're actually pounded. So it has this very beautiful texture. The next thing in health food, pounded oats. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're going to take a oh, break. Oh, and I need... Oh, oh, go ahead. Too late, just one other thing. See buckthorn, which is my greatest obsession. Yeah. These beautiful, deep orange with a yellowish cast berries that grow on bushes and are filled with vitamin C and carotenoids. And you press the berries and you get this amazing juice that's very sour. You need to add some sweetener to it. But uh, it is one of the most robust things that I can imagine drinking. And if you drink it in the winter, uh, you just feel very healthy. And is it is yeah, because I read it, I've never heard of I've been to Russia many times and never heard of or been served to my knowledge sea buckthorn. So is it something that's only found in the in the Arctic Circle region or? Uh, it's in the Arctic. It's in Siberia. Um, I think they're uh, growing some on the Baltic coast now and they grow it in the Far East as well. But it, it tends to like very harsh environments and, and cold ones. And is it a berry that grows on a bush? Where, how does it grow? Yes, it's a bush. Wow. And presumably, it's not called sea buckthorn in Russian. What's it called? Ablipicha. Hmm. And I first encountered it on, I think, my very first trip to the Soviet Union in 1972, when there was virtually nothing to be had in the stores. This was in Moscow. But friends would tell me about this miracle berry. That's what they called it, a kind of miracle berry from Siberia. And they would send people to try and get some because they believed that it was a a cancer cure, which hasn't been proven, but it does have a lot of really um, strong properties, you know, for keeping the immune system healthy. Fascinating. And and we'll get to it after the break, but in your book, you have, have a kind of a recipe of what to do with it, right? Yes. If you can get it. Oh, you can. Oh, okay. All right, well, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back, and we'll go deeper into the Russian Arctic with author and scholar Dara Goldstein. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep-deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. 
By taking the pledge to be a fair kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning cookbook author and Russian scholar Dara Goldstein about her latest book, Beyond the North Wind and the Food Culture of the Russian Arctic. So just we're talking about some of this wonderful specifics in, in the book and fascinating kind of, well, they're actually not new things, but new to many people who'd be reading the book. But going back to when you decided to, to focus on, on this aspect of Russia for this book, were there certain like misperceptions that you really wanted to clarify about Russian food or with the general public? Or were you just trying to discover kind of whether there were really distinctions between modern Russia and historical Russia? I think for myself, I wanted to find the distinctions, but my larger purpose was to uh, illuminate Russian cuisine for Americans or for English readers throughout the world. I think anyone who went to the Soviet Union um, experienced really bad food. Even people who go to Russia today, if they don't know where to eat, they won't necessarily eat exquisitely. Mm. And I remember talking uh, not that long ago uh, to, uh, I got in touch with a woman who reviews books and her focus is on Russia. And I said, well, uh, can we send you a copy of this book to consider? And she said, I'm vegetarian. I don't think I even want to look at it because I don't eat meat. And I wrote back and I said, you don't have to look at it, but there's very little (laughs) meat in this book. It's mostly vegetables, because that's what people lived on. Meat was extremely expensive. So it's really living off the land. And even things, this idea that Russia might be bad meat and potatoes. The potato wasn't widely planted in Russia until the late 19th century. So it's quite new. Uh, So people, I do think, have a misconception. Well, I was going to say, too, I think, while, yes, you if you go to Russia, and particularly if you, you dine with regular people, you will be served quite a lot of potatoes. But a lot of those potatoes will be grown in private gardens and have a lot more flavor than a giant Idaho russet potato, would you say? Yes. And a lot of people still do plant potatoes, even though... Uh, the food system is working better than it did during Soviet years. It's a way of making sure that they can get through the next winter and be self-sufficient. It, it's sort of culturally bred into them now. Yeah, no, I've definitely had conversations with many people who grew up during Soviet times and remember that one a large way, as, as you sort of alluded to, many people in the population survived the worst times was because people cultivated their own vegetable gardens at, out of necessity. Yes. To survive. And now but it's res- less out of necessity than out of desire. And tradition. But, but, but And also, I suppose there's a danger of some of that knowledge being lost because as I want you started to talk about I want to talk about more is about how much fermentation is a part of the Russian diet and way of living and and contributes to the dishes so could you talk more like what do you think people should come away just as you were saying with this person who who thought a Russian cookbook would not include vegetables or vegetarian dishes and you talk a little bit about the importance of fast days and um, non-fast days. Did I get that right? I yes. Think. Um, <laughs> and so so what, what should we understand about both the, the fasting and the not fasting and fermentation and vegetables in the Russian diet? So it's really interesting. Uh, when Russia accepted Christianity in 988, um, the Russian Orthodox Church was very savvy and overlaid the pagan festivals, like the Butter Festival that is coming up later this month, when Blinir served in the image of the sun. And you eat, if in the States we have Mardi Gras, or in Europe you have Fastnacht and uh, all of these carnival celebrations, in Russia Mm -hmm. it lasts for an entire week. And the pancakes are the vehicle for lots of butter. 
So the church uh, overlaid this with Lent. So this became the big blowout gorge before a long six weeks of Lent. And throughout the year, there were feast days and fast days, but the fast days were almost 200 days of the year, if you can imagine that. And they coincided with the agricultural cycle. So during the hungry times, those were fast days when people couldn't have eaten very much anyway, but then they felt that they were being devout and Mm. uh, showing devotion to God. So it was kind of a savvy move, I think. But what it meant was that um, for the majority of the populace, and we're not talking about the elite, but the the peasants uh, were eating vegetables and grains. And they foraged a lot. Uh, Mushrooms are extraordinarily important in the Russian diet, as are lots of berries, and the berries are just marvelous. And so... Uh, it became a way of taking this bounty that you gathered in the summer and preserving it so that you could still get through what in those days was a very long winter. The winters are getting shorter now. Mm. But uh, the mushrooms would be salted, uh, layered with uh, peppers and garlic, uh, lots of dill usually, sometimes bay leaves, sometimes allspice. And beets would simply be put into water and allowed to naturally ferment. Cucumbers and uh, cabbage also would be layered with salt to turn into sauerkraut or different degrees of sour pickles. And it just goes on and on. They also fermented their black bread into uh, a drink that is known as kvass, uh, which comes from the word to ferment. And it's a, sort of like a small beer that is bubbly and quite delicious. Well, and there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. So on fast days, did that not necessarily mean you didn't eat anything? It, 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 did it more often mean you were, certain things were not allowed? Or yes. Or it was literally? It wasn't a strict fast. It, it meant simply that um, you couldn't have dairy or meat. I mean, some people, there were strict fasts where you weren't supposed to eat, but for the regular fast days, you just abstained from rich foods. And then another thing I wanted to follow up on in terms of the fermentation that I noticed in the book is you mentioned that a lot of the, the um, pickling that they do is not vinegar-based. It's, it's ne- uh, traditionally, it's never vinegar-based. I mean, it's not the Russians won't have vinegar pickles, but that's not a real pickle. Because it just uh, the vinegar kills the the good bacteria, fermentation allows that good bacteria to thrive. It's what we talk about um, as being probiotic now. So there is a health value to those uh, naturally fermented products, and they also taste so much better. You don't have that real sharpness that you get with vinegar. And so essentially, this stuff, in terms of how it's for, it's essentially brined, right? Yes. So literally, it's the vegetable, water, salt, thyme, and air. Yes. And you can yes. add flavorings. You know, you can play around with things. Um, with the pickles, uh, they'll often throw in things like cherry leaves or oak leaves or horseradish leaves. Um They don't give that much flavor, but they have a lot of tannin in them, and so that helps keep the pickles fresh. And I want to go back to blinis, too, because you you spend a fair amount of time on them. You've mentioned (laughs) them several times, and I think blinis can easily be taken for granted. And so, but I wanted to get, because I've eaten plenty in my lifetime, but I'm not sure if I've ever had what would be considered an authentic one. So what did you find is authentic? Well, I, Todd, you should know me that I don't really like the word authentic <laughs> because <laughs> everything is authentic in the moment. But um, the classic Russian? Yes, lean, you can redefine however okay, you Okay, thank you. Um, there are lots of different kinds, but my favorite is using half buckwheat flour and half wheat flour. You can make blini just with buckwheat, but... Um, it is a bit heavier 
Buckwheat doesn't have any gluten in it, and it also has a really strong flavor. So I like to do it half and half. And the thing that distinguishes the Russian blini, the pancakes, from American ones is that they're yeast-raised. They have lots of butter, lots of eggs, lots of heavy cream. You uh, whip the egg whites separately, so you have this really light, airy batter that you pour onto the griddle. Uh, you get beautiful big holes. It's very porous that are intended to uh, be doused with lots of butter. And what traditionally, what size are blini? Uh, they're about five inches, so they're pretty big. So the little blini you get at a cocktail party with a piece of smoked salmon on it, that's uh, not in the Russian style. But they're so that you so they're like generally traditionally not as big as a crepe before you roll it a French crepe. Um, they can be, yeah. I mean, the pans I have are about five inches, but you could do it uh, somewhat larger as well. And would the blini that you were served or made when you went to the Arctic are they eaten in similar ways and with similar accompaniments as you might find in St. Petersburg or Moscow? Or uh, they were. No. I mean, I had some of the classic ones, but I also had some that were absolutely a revelation in a small village um, at the end of a, a dirt path where uh, there wasn't a plumbing, there wasn't heating, there was electricity, but they were still doing all of their cooking and baking and heating in this great Russian masonry stove. And the blini I had there were so extraordinary. They were made with um, pea flour, dried pea flour. So they took dried peas, you know, like we would use to make split pea soup. Mm -hmm. And they ground that into flour. And they made a batter. And they uh, baked them in on the hearth of the oven. And this is the way blini were always made in the past. Because in Russian, you say to bake even though now everyone does it on a stovetop. Mm -hmm. But they went into this oven, and they were so crisp on the top and kind of creamy within. And we sprinkled them with that talaknoa, that oatmeal uh, powder, mm -hmm. and they were just extraordinary. And I really struggled about putting that recipe in the book. Um, I think it tasted so good because it was done in a in a bake oven, basically. Me meaning that it would be very hard for someone to replicate the. Yeah. And and would they have did did it have whipped egg white in it or no? Yes. Yeah. Well, even then, presumably in that kind of environment, the chickens are producing very very pure eggs from what they're eating. That also even that would just taste different. Yes, and the um, they have beautiful beautiful meadows there. They have salt marshes. So all of the dairy is extraordinary. The milk is really rich and creamy and has a beautiful flavor. Um, they raise sheep, and the lamb there gets that really nice herbal, salty flavor that comes through in the meat. Um, a lot of beautiful things. And so in researching the book, I'm assuming, both from looking at it from talking to you before, that you, you went more than one time and you went in all seasons, or at least in summer and winter? Yes. The initial deep dive into the Arctic was during the summer. It's much easier then because it doesn't get dark. And so mm. you have a lot of time to do whatever you need to do. And uh, it was just that much easier. But Having been there for, uh, I don't remember how long we were there at this point, but I felt I had to be back in the winter because <laughs> I had to experience the real Russia. So I went back in February and brought the photographer for the book with me. Um, and he's Swedish, so he's, he's used to extreme weather, but he was pretty blown away by it. And it's so beautiful. We were on the edge of the earth up by the Barents Sea, and the northern lights were flowing through the sky, and uh, the wind was howling, but there was just such um, drama to nature, 
And we ate really, really well. Probably the best fish I've ever had in my life because it comes from the cold waters of the Barents Sea, which is part of the White Sea. And things like halibut and mackerel and cod. And they do this wonderful thing with fish that's called stroganina, where they take a, a chunk of fish that's frozen and a very sharp knife, and they shave it off in thin slices. So in a way, it's like sashimi, except it's frozen, and you put it on your tongue, and it still has the ice crystals, and it melts, and it's just divine. Wow. And and so did you also find in doing this, having done the Nordic cooking book, were there quite stark differences between the Russian Arctic food and the Scandinavian? Or or did you actually start seeing more, the, there was actually like more commonality or common overlaps to that than necessarily as you go farther south in Russia? You find a lot of similarities between uh, Russian food uh, in the West and Eastern Finnish food. And, of course, there's a good reason for that, because uh, that part of Russia used to be Finland, (laughs) and then the Mm. Russians got it. So in terms of the pies they make, the uh, kinds of dough that they use, and a lot of rye, a lot of barley, um, the fish pies, uh, the use of berries, it's quite similar to what you find in the eastern part of Finland. And it, uh, I would say that that's the greatest similarity. Okay. I didn't mean this to be a trick question, but it's going to come out that okay. way now. So since you were coming full circle on your journey where you were looking for this sort of heart of, I don't know, ancient or historic or less adulterated Russian food in the Arctic Circle, did you, do you feel like you found it or you just find Finnish food? Oh, no, I found it. Um, it, it doesn't seem like a trick question. Um, I found the food that is something that comes from the natural world rather than being imposed upon it. So uh, all of the fish from the waters, the mushrooms uh, from the fields and the woods, the berries, the uh, hardy grains that they grow... All of that feels very much um, organic in the sense of it is organic food, but it also is part of the land. And uh, it didn't have that. I mean, obviously, people in the cities are eating pizza and they have access to fast foods now. Um, I didn't really look at that, but when you go to these villages and when you go to people's houses, you find that they're still eating in ways that can be traced back uh, for many, many centuries. And the interesting thing was that even after, I don't know, six weeks or however long it was of Uh, doing research, which if you're (laughs) researching a cookbook, you have to be eating constantly and tasting, tasting, tasting. And because it's such a huge expanse of land, there is so much distance to cover. So I wasn't getting my usual exercise. And I thought I'm just going to roll back home. And the fact is that the food was so pure, and so unadulterated that actually, I was a healthier feeling when I got back home, even having eaten uh, so, so much for that many weeks. Um, And I didn't anticipate that. Well, yes, you've put everyone on a new... (laughs) The Arctic (laughs) diet. I'm not sure everyone's going to want to do it, but... uh, Yeah, do the pounded oat diet. Exactly. Patent that, but maybe be for the better, so... Well, it's funny when you say the pounded oats. So, um, you know, that oat milk, the oatly that everyone's Mm -hmm. just raving about as though it was a discovery by the Swedes. (laughs) But the Russians, I I found in the the Russian uh, chronicle, which dates to the uh, 11th century, they're talking about making this oat milk. And they turned that into a very rudimentary porridge uh, because there's a lot of starch, and so it thickened. And that was the mainstay of a peasant diet. 
So it's been around for a long time, maybe not put into hipster coffee. <laughs> well, all things being full circle in the, in the world of food and history about. Yeah. So have you been to Russia? And if so, what did you eat? What are some of your favorite Russian dishes? Or have we changed your thinking about Russian food today? We want to know. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. After the break, Dara reveals her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Dara, you're up. What's your Julia moment? I have a good one, Todd, I have to say. So in 1983, I was offered a job at Williams, which is in a small town in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts. A wonderful college. It was a wonderful job. But moving there from the Bay Area in San Francisco was pretty intense, and I felt isolated, um, and isolated from access to the food world, because I had a great um, academic community there, but no one else who was really interested in food. And there was this wonderful organization that uh, was fairly new at the time in Boston called the Culinary Historians of Boston, the first culinary historians group in the United States. And they had monthly meetings, and it was sort of a lifeline to me. They were always in the evening, which meant that I had to travel on a country road for three hours to get to Cambridge or to Boston. And then I'd have a lecture, and then I would drive back on these country roads late at night. So it was a commitment. Well, I, it might have been in 1984, I can't quite remember, but um, there was an exhibition at the Fogg Art Museum at Harvard of 17th century Dutch still lifes. And a food historian who specialized in Dutch food named Peter Rose was going to give us a private tour. And then Julia invited all of us to her house for lunch afterwards. This was a Saturday morning, and I was so excited to meet her, to see the artwork, and just be part of this wonderful group. So because we had to go in before the uh, exhibition opened, I had to leave Williamstown at about 5.30 in the morning. It was March, it was cold, it was dark, and I got in the car and I'm driving along and there's nothing most of the way, even today there's nothing most of the way to Boston. And about halfway there, I, you know, I finally sort of wake up and I look down, I see I'm still wearing my slippers. (laughs) And I thought, oh no, there are no stores to stop at. I couldn't turn around or I'd miss the event. And I was just beside myself. I was so embarrassed. So I get to the room and I literally shuffle in. You know, I had this nice dress on and I'm wearing my bedroom (laughs) slippers. And someone brought me over to meet Julia and I looked down and um, we were introduced and I said oh I'm so embarrassed (laughs) I'm wearing my slippers I'm just mortified and she looked at me and in that inimitable voice that I'm sure everyone tries to reproduce and can't but she said oh dearie if I could only wear my slippers all the time I would And that, to me, just encapsulates who Julia was. She was always so kind and so gracious and trying to find ways to make people feel comfortable instead of putting them off. And that just uh, has always stayed with me. (laughs) Well, and that will stay with everyone. That's sort of an And and for people who've not seen uh, Dara's photo or met her in person, you're quite a bit shorter than Julia was. So it would have been this very tall yes. woman and this other petite woman in her slippers sort of looking yeah. down. <laughs> Amazing. 
Well, thank you for sharing that 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 very self-deprecating story that you're willing to admit. <laughs> I, I wish I could tell you that I made that trip to Boston other times without forgetting things, but that was not the case. <laughs> I had numerous other instances of uh, just... Well, that's a whole little small gift book, like uh, yeah. <laughs> things that I forgot on my way to Boston. I made Anne Willem put that in one of her books, things that she smuggled in her suitcase because oh, she was such okay. a smuggler. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dara Goldstein's latest cookbook is Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore, which was just published by Ten Speed Press. It's full of captivating captivating recipes and gorgeous photographs by Stefan Wittainen. Look for it online or ask for it at your favorite local bookseller. To, to journey along with Dara, she's at Dara, D-A-R-R-A dot Goldstein on Instagram and at Dara underscore Goldstein on Twitter. You can learn more about all of our editorial and creative work on daragoldstein.com. Dara, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So if you're already following us, ask your friends to. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny, a Russian group. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.